people hearing God's word and um, becoming saved and uh, being encouraged and being uh, uh, grown up in the faith. And that's an important thing for us to remember uh, as this time of year, people are looking for good news. There's so many bad news and, oh man, sometimes you don't want to see it, but the reality it is uh, it's just perspective, isn't it? It's really perspective. You can see something and go, man, that's terrible. Or you can see something and say, man, I wonder what God's going to do in that situation. And all things change. Because then you see that God's in control of it. And he can use even terrible things to bring about good. And um, today we're going to depart from Corinthians for uh, just maybe a couple of weeks. And to the book of Luke today. The book of Luke. And the title of our message is Good News to All. Good News to All. And... Um, Hopefully we could understand it. It is, it is sort of a Christmas message, but not so much of a Christmas message. And the reason why I say that is because so many of us have heard the Christmas message so many times. And you know what we do? We tune out. We say, well, I've heard it so many times. What's the difference if I hear it another time? It, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll think of something else while this, this is happening. And I hope we don't do that because uh, we'll maybe try to read it from, fresher, uh, from a different perspective. What we need is fresh eyes. What we need is fresh eyes to see the scripture. We might have seen it a long time and, and heard it so many times, uh, but we need fresher eyes to see what God has already put in his word so that we can apply it to our lives. And that is the message of Christmas today. It's good news to all because that was really the intent of the good news. And if you understand the background and what was going on in Israel at that time, You'd be like, boy, it sounds a lot like today, and, uh, and yet God had good news, good news to all, and, um, but it didn't come the way people expected it, and I hope that uh, we can grab that in our hearts as well, and it didn't start the way many people expected it, so let's pray and ask the Lord for his insight. Dear Lord, we're so thankful that we're gathered in your name, centered around your word, and lifting up your son, and we're going to need your Holy Spirit, Lord, to really bring that about. Uh, Lord, we're just men and women who are in desperate need of a Savior, a desperate need of your touch. And uh, Lord, just like on the first day of creation, you brought light. And I prayed you bring light to our understanding today. And just like on the day of creation, you, you made us, Lord God, you created us, Lord. May you and us create a new man. Uh, maybe some of us, we need to be born again today. And we would need that new creation in us, Lord God. And some of us who are already born again, we're going to need the power of the Holy Spirit that is ever present. If we call on your name, Lord, we would have it. And so, Lord, we ask you this morning that you would give us fresh eyes to see Jesus, that we would see Jesus, we would see his coming, we would see his uh, redemption drawing near. And, uh, Lord, may we join with the men and women in Israel at that time who heard good news despite the bad news, they praised you, and worshipped, and prayed, and, and sung so many wonderful things that uh, are embedded in our hearts because of uh, so many times we've heard it. Uh, Lord, I do pray that we would not take it for granted, that we would not uh, think of it as just another day, another message, another Christmas, Lord, but it really will revolutionize our thinking and behavior uh, for this coming time, Lord. We thank you for our brothers and sisters. We thank you those for those who have called in this week and in the previous weeks, for prayer, but also, Lord, for praise, that they would rejoice in hearing your word, and they would know you, and they would be intimately close to you. So, Lord, we pray this morning that your word will go forth in power and strength of your Holy Spirit, not unto us, Lord, but unto you. Uh, we do thank you, Lord, for our brothers and sisters who serve 
and who are putting so many things together and uh, bringing about service to you and to people in this fellowship and to people outside this fellowship. They're being served and they're being taken care of by your people, Lord, and, and you would have it that way, that we would take care of one another. Uh, for this is how we proclaim Christ in Jesus' name. Amen. The Gospel of Luke, very unique gospel. In fact, uh, it's so unique, we read it so many times, we forget how many things are in the book of Luke. And uh, yet it's the most descriptive in terms of Christmas, in terms of what happened at the coming of Jesus. But it's probably the one that we forget the most because uh, there's so many stories in there. And now, what do I mean by story? Not fictional stories, but true events. And you'll see it right away. He dismisses the fact that this was made-up stories. He just says, no, these are true events. Uh, in fact, uh, we start with the Christmas story here in Luke chapter 1, and we end with the road to Emmaus, the resurrection in chapter 24. Uh, we have the story of the Good Samaritans, the prodigal son, all amazing stories in the book of Luke. And uh, if you do want to get a hold of that and wanted to hear well, what we had to say on it, is, I don't know, there's like a two years worth of teaching on the book of Luke that we did. Uh, it was quite long, but it was quite worth it. And um, 24 chapters in the book of Luke. So remember the writer of the gospel of Luke uh, was no ordinary man. He's actually, um, he was a doctor. He was a physician. And he was quite detailed in how he wrote. And I believe that's why God made him write two books. There's Luke 1 and there's Luke 2. Anybody know what Luke 2 is about? The book of Acts. You got it. We studied that last night. Uh, were a scientist, physician. Luke writes very detailed stuff, miraculous things, and um, he was Paul's companion for quite a bit uh, of his journey. Uh, so here's a man who knew quite well not only the story of Jesus, but the story of the gospel, the story of how the church began. Uh, and I think we ought to do well to read Luke, especially this time of year, and to uh, take account of what he said and what he wrote and what he saw and what he put down so that we can see more of Jesus. And that's the point of Luke. We can see more of Jesus. Let's read together verse 1. Uh, maybe not together. It'll sound kind of weird, but uh, let's read in our minds. And as I read uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Inasmuch as we have undertaken to compile an account of things accomplished among us, just that they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Now, there's many questions on why Luke wrote it, but we know one thing for sure is uh, he did write it to a man, a man named Theophilus. And the word Theophilus means God lover. So he's a man who loves God and uh, who is also loved by God. And he wanted to know the things concerning the things of Jesus. Now, there were many people at the time, this is about 30 years after Jesus had risen from the dead, who had many speculations about Jesus. And uh, did he do this? Did he do that? What did he do? What did he say? And, and you would be the same thing, you know, thinking the same thing. What did he write? What did he do? Uh, and Luke says, look, uh, all the accounts that we've heard from eyewitnesses, here's a detailed account. Here's some truthful things. Here are things that are written in consecutive order. And here are things so you know the exact truth of what happened. So Luke is uh, very detailed, but also he is going to write true things. True things that uh, will give you an account of what really happened. Because there were many things that people said about Jesus. And yet, um, many of them were fabricated. Some things were not true, embellished. But here's an account, and we have four of them. We have four of them. 
but this one in particular is very, very detailed. Uh, four accounts, the four Gospels, and Luke is one of them. And he begins by telling us that he's writing true things to a man named Theophilus who wanted to know the things that happened in Jerusalem at the time when Jesus was born. And uh, he begins with the birth of Jesus. He begins, perhaps not the way we think of the birth of Jesus as Christmas. He begins in verse 5 and he says, In the days of Herod. In the days of Herod. And so uh, it is something factual, something historical. It's not some fanciful story that happened, you know, in some time in, in an unknown place, in an unknown galaxy. You know, the stories began in books and TV shows and movies. Far, far away in an unknown galaxy, in an unknown place. No, it tells you where it happened. It happened, Herod was the king of Judea. You know when it happened. You know where it happened. And uh, you're going to know some of the characters there. And uh, by the way, today I might need some volunteers. We're going to read some uh, passages of scripture. So hopefully you did bring your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, let you borrow mine. But if you want to come up and read a few passages, not a lot of them, but just a few and um, we'll help some volunteers. That would help to so have some volunteers. One thing that Luke is very, very keen on this, and, and, um, and, and Luke has been mentioned many, many times, it is a gospel that lifts women up. It is a gospel that lifts women up is unique. Because unlike other gos- the other gospels, who they do mention women, of course, uh, this one specifically has a lot to do with women. It has a lot to do with women. In fact, the Christmas story... And the story of Jesus begins with two women. Without those two women, we wouldn't have Christmas, by the way. And um, there's Elizabeth, there's Mary, there's Anna, right? There's the widow of Maine, there's Mary Magdalene, there's the women who follow Jesus along the way. Uh, there's the women with the alabaster flask, uh, Mary Magdalene, we mentioned that. Uh, there are many women mentioned in them, and uh, uh, the mention of them are good. The mention of them that they were actually believers in Jesus and follow Jesus. Now, you may question, says, what's the issue with women in the, in the book of Luke? It's telling us that people that were discounted in that society uh, because of the social status in many, uh, in many places in the ancient world, including Israel, uh, women were frowned upon. They were looked upon as uh, just basically mothers and, and nothing else to do, and uh, they could get, uh, man could divorce them uh, for even for not having children. And uh, they can have many wives, and they can have multiple wives. And so that was not the Bible, by the way. That was just people and culture and thinking of the day, Roman culture, Greek culture, and even got into God's people, the Jews. They began to divorce their wives, and they began to have no um, true relationship as God intended it from the book of Genesis. So women are mentioned very, very specifically, and a whole chapter is dedicated to two of them, Elizabeth and Mary, Elizabeth and Mary, and um, one particular marriage is of Zachariah and Elizabeth, and we're going to talk about that quite a bit, and um, it mentions the poor, a lot of that, mentions the poor in the book of Luke, Uh, it mentions sinners, it mentions sinners, Uh, it mentions that sinners can be saved uh, more than any other gospel, I don't know if you qualify for that, but uh, you're a woman, you're poor, you're destitute, or you're a sinner. You're qualified. Um, the gospel is full of good news, and this is good news for sinners. Good news for sinners is that um, God has provided a way of forgiveness. For those who have sinned, for those who have broken God's law, he's provided a way out. And that's what what's needed. Uh, more than anything else, the gospel of forgiveness. The gospel of forgiveness. And uh, it mentions Jesus as a true son of man, a true human and, um, and therefore, it applies to all 
who would hear this message, to hear the word of the Lord, whether you're a woman, whether you're a man, whether you're a, a poor, whether you're destitute, whether you have more wealth, or whether you are a sinner. And uh, I think that it will be all of us, right, to qualify. And uh, Luke writes this in a very, very specific way, uh, very much a short amount of time, because he has to get 24 chapters in, even though there were no chapters at the time. He gets 24 chapters in from the birth of Jesus, even before that, to his death and resurrection. What a book. And it would be good for us to do that. So where does the gospel begin? It begins here in verse 5, in the days of Herod the king. And uh, he was the king of Judea. There was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife, and from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly with all the commandments and the requirements of the Lord. But they had no child. And because Elizabeth was barren, they were both advanced in years. Now, what we know from the background of it, that... um, if a woman was barren, she didn't have any children, she was uh, full of disgrace. It was, uh, it was a shame. It was something that like a curse. And uh, that's the way the culture looked at it. And a man could have divorced his wife and had another wife that would bear children. And uh, so this is kind of special that Zechariah actually stayed with Elizabeth. Uh, because in that culture, they would have been like, hey, you know, you can't have children. Oh, get another one. And it was even among God's people. It was even among the leaders, the religious leaders. So it is very important to remember that, that they were barren, they were advancing years, uh, but they were going to become the mother and father of a very special man. It was John, right? So the gospel begins, the Christmas story begins, not with Jesus. Shocking. It begins with Elizabeth and Zechariah. So we've got to remember that. And why is that important? You'll see. Because you cannot know Christmas unless you know what was happening. You cannot know Jesus unless you know John. And that's going to be the emphasis today. And then next week we'll talk more about Jesus. But today we'll talk about the Christmas story. But you can't know salvation without Jesus. Amen? You can't know salvation without Christ. But you can't know Jesus unless you first meet a man named John. And that man had parents. And they were very godly. And that was Elizabeth and Zechariah. And by the way, the reason why this starts like this, the gospel of Jesus, is because John and Jesus were cousins. They had a relationship. Uh, They were not just friends, but they were family members. And one interesting thing is, John is the Old Testament. We're still in the Old Testament, but we're in the New Testament. Kind of confusing, but both Jesus and John are part of the Old Testament. You ever thought about that? They were part of the Old Testament. Uh, the Bible says that John is the last of the prophets, and Jesus still died under the law, right? He's still under the Old Testament. It's not until the cross and the resurrection that we have the New Testament. So what are you saying all this? It's because we're still dealing with the Old Testament giving way to the new. There's something new that is happening. Despite all the problems that Israel has at this time, they still had uh, the Old Testament living under the law. And uh, the last book in your Bible, and it's the book of Malachi. If you want to turn there, you can turn there. The book of Malachi is your last book in the Old Testament. And Malachi, he ends with this sort of a very fascinating prophecy, Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4, there's only six verses in Malachi chapter 4. And um, it ends with this incredible message. For behold, the day is coming, verse 1 of chapter 4 of Malachi, Burning like a furnace, and all the arrogance and every evildoer will be, will be chaff in the day that is coming. He will set them 
ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will, uh, with healing in its wing, will rise, and you will go forth. Oh, something. And you will go forth and skip about the calves in the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day in which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts, remember my servant Moses, even the statues and ordinance which I commanded in Oreb. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet. Before the coming and the terrible, gray of the terrible day of the Lord, he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite that land with a curse. Well, like, well, that sounds scary. Well, it sounds scary in the sense that there is judgment that God has prepared for that day, the day of the Lord. But he's going to do something before that, and that he's going to send a messenger. He's going to send someone like Elijah. He's going to send a forerunner before the Lord comes. And that messenger was going to restore families, was going to bring children back to their parents and their parents back to their children. And that is, of course, a prophecy of John the Baptist. John the Baptist came in that power, in that spirit, in that mission to restore Israel back to the Lord. And he would reconcile children to their fathers and fathers to their children before the day of the Lord, before Jesus would come. Now, of course, we know now in the New Testament, Jesus comes twice. And so this also applies to the end one. But we're not focusing on the end one today. We're not focusing on the day of the Lord. We're focusing on his first coming. That Elijah was sent, or someone like Elijah was sent, John the Baptist, to prepare the way of the Lord. And you'll see it in a moment, how this messenger, John is the messenger. John will be the messenger that will come before Jesus uh, would arrive on the scene. And his birth will take place in a more miraculous way. But before there was John and Jesus, of course, there was Elizabeth and Mary. But in those times, go back to Luke, look at verse 5. It tells you when this happened. And you might, you might have missed it, because it just simply says in the days of Herod the king. Herod was the king of Judea. And um, to know what was, the time was like, you have to know a little bit about this man named Herod. A real character, real history. Uh, you can find out a lot about it, and this is not a time to do it. But I will tell you this. Uh, conspicuously, his, uh, his tomb was unearthed this week in, in Jerusalem. I don't know if you saw it. Uh, very fascinating. It was, in a, uh, it was in a mountain. Now, this was found 13 years ago. Long story. Fascinating story, but long story. The guy who found it, they, they never could find Herod's tomb. I don't know if you knew that. For all these years, or you read your Bible... And all the uh, atheists and agnostics were laughing at us. Because they said, oh, <laughs> Christians, you, know, you think you believe in Harry? He never existed and all this stuff. But over the years, God always has the last laugh. Um, they've been found. Coins with his name. Things about his uh, decrees that he made. And, of course, nobody knew where he was buried. And then so the question was, how can a man so great, so awesome, so by the way, he was great not because he was a good guy. He was great because he built a lot of things. He was a great builder. Uh, left so many things supposedly built by him. There's no, no tomb, nothing, no palace. Uh, well, they found Masada, right? That Masada uh, near the Dead Sea uh, where the battle took place. But they also found this incredible tomb. It was a mountain, hollowed. Looks like a volcano. Uh, it was hollowed from, yeah, there's an aerial shot right there. This is all done in the first century with no hydraulics, no uh, uh, crane, nothing. I mean, no machinery, absolutely all made by hand. And you could imagine, how did he do this? 
Uh, he was called Herod the Great for that reason. He was a man that was called that he could move mountains. He literally moved mountains, and he would take one mountain and took, put it on top of another, and he just relished in that regard because he loved to build and impress the Romans. He wanted to impress the Romans. So here's his tomb, a palace, uh, buried with a lot of treasure in it. Uh, he also did the, um, uh, in uh, Caesarea, in Caesarea, he built a bay just by sinking ships and all this stuff. It's incredible. Uh, he also rebuilt, not to rebuild the temple, expanded the second temple uh, to the largest known building in the, in, the, in the ancient world. I mean, some of the stones in that building are bigger than the, some of the pyramids, the rocks that are in the pyramids. Uh, some of these rocks are bigger than those in the pyramids. I mean, it's unbelievable. He was a man that could move mountains. Yet Jesus said, if you have faith in me, you can move mountains. It was a reference to, to Herod. You know, he could move mountains by power and strength and the power of Rome. But if you believe in me, you can move a mountain. And you can tell that mountain to go into the ocean. Isn't that amazing? It's, we know exactly what Jesus was saying that. He was saying that because Herod was uh, the talk of the town. Ooh, ah, Herod. No, Jesus says, you put your trust in me. You can do things that Herod couldn't even imagine. Uh, to move a mountain just by prayer and faith and believing in Jesus. Unbelievable, right? But the days of Herod were not fun. In fact, his father had gone to Julius Caesar and said, I demand to be the king over Judea, over that area. After Pompey was defeated and Julius Caesar became Julius Caesar, of course, known in history, he demanded the kingdom, he demanded the throne, and Julius Caesar said, how much are you willing to give? And Herod's family said, whatever you want. And he put Herod right on the throne, and he became the king, Herod the Great. And he was a wicked king. He was a terrible king. He was good to his uh, building projects, but he wasn't very good to people. In fact, he was always paranoid that he was going to be dethroned. He killed his parents. He killed everybody. In fact, uh, he killed his opponents, his family, his brothers, and there were other brothers uh, that he had. And he killed them all because he did not want to be challenged. And he built, and he was like paranoid. He built these palaces like Masada and Places that you go to, then you're like incredible to hide out, to hide just in case somebody came after him. Talk about paranoid, right? Uh, but he was a terrible king, a wicked ruler who defrauded God's people and he subjugated them under his thumb, right? Under his thumb and everybody around them. They, so by the time you get to this 2 BC, 4 BC around there, uh, Israel was tired. People were tired, the fighting, the war, the civil wars. Uh, people didn't want to fight anymore. They had been subjected to Roman invasion, Greek invasion prior to that. They had been subjected to terrible civil wars. There was the Zealots, which were Jewish, uh, almost like Jewish terrorists, who would fight in guerrilla warfare against the Romans because they did not want the Romans to rule over them. And in charge of all this was Herod. And people were just tired. And people were, uh, have lost their loved ones. Uh, through the many wars and the many problems that they had, famine, starvation, war, civil war, uh, in a wicked ruler, in a wicked ruler who was in charge of the whole area. Now, he pretended to like them because he was a descendant of Esau. He was an Edomian. He was a descendant of Esau. Remember Jacob and Esau? He was a descendant of them. And uh, he pretended to really like the Jews, and he wanted to get in on them, uh, with them, because he wanted to be their king. And he pretended to follow Judaism and all those things. So his, uh, his rule was filled with intrigue, lies, hypocrisy, fraud, cheating, stealing, divorce, death, civil war. 
Sound familiar? Um, and things were really bad. Things were really bad. And then you had um, the Jewish people who were waiting for the Messiah, who were waiting for things to happen. No word of the Lord for 400 years. Since Malachi, zero. No word from God. 400 years. You would be tired too. And you would think, when is God going to move? When is God going to do something? Should we do something? Oh, there were plenty of Jews who wanted to do it. They were called the Zealots. And uh, by the way, some of them were in the disciples of Jesus. You ever read Simon the Zealot? He was a terrorist that God, Jesus brought in and he made him one of his disciples. Isn't it amazing what God can do? God can take a terrorist, make him a disciple, an apostle, a preacher of the word. That's what he could do. He's able to do that, by the way. Um, he took you and me and all the things that we used to do against him and made us proclaimers of God's word. But he did that. Uh, but people were tired and it was a terrible war. Uh, many widows at the time of Israel, because many of their husbands have gone to war, and, and they fought the Romans, and they died. And, um, but God was about to do something. In the middle of the most depressive time, and you could imagine if Herod was your king, uh, you know, I could you know, understand the jokes around the water cooler at work, you know, oh, yeah, Herod's doing this again, or you know, prayer meetings, oh, Herod's doing that again. And, uh, and they see no way out. In comes the story the impossible story, possible story of two parents. Well, they didn't have any children yet, but two husband, uh, husband and wife, two people. And uh, let's read that. Let's read that because that's fascinating here. Uh, verse 5, it tells us that he was, from, uh, he was a priest from the order of Abijah. He was a son of Aaron, and he married a daughter of Aaron. So they were like a priesthood family, and they were righteous. They had no child in verse 8. And it happened while he was performing his priestly service before God at the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple. So what's amazing about this is that uh, here's Zechariah, who is a priest, son of a priest, and he has his orders to go out and do some work, the work of, um, uh, the work of God of priest during the time in the temple. Now, what's amazing about this chapter, and you'll see it in a moment, how angels appear. One thing about Luke, you'll see it, and it's, uh, it'll challenge you if you don't believe in supernatural things. Angels appear quite often, quite often, and one of them is going to appear here. Uh, there's all this talk of extraterrestrial stuff now, right? You hear all these news and people talking about, hey, UFOs are real. And there's even Jewish scientists who are come out and say, hey, UFOs are real and all this stuff. Well, I would like to say I do believe in extraterrestrials. I, I do believe that. I do believe that there are beings from other places on this earth. They're called angels. They're called demons. Absolutely true. God created angels. God created beings. Uh, some of them are bad. Some of them are not so good. And they're fallen. And, uh, of course, they disguise themselves as uh, visitors from other galaxies. But in reality, that's all it is. But I do believe that they exist. And the book of Luke tells you that. And the book of Revelation tells you that. In fact, if you believe in the end times, uh, you're going to see a lot of angels. It's my, uh, I'm not predicting anything. I just read in the Bible. You'll see angels doing some extraordinary things. I think Roy mentioned that, entertaining angels unaware. Uh, well, that will happen. And that did happen at the time of Zechariah. See, it's the our Western mind and thinking, right, as Americans, that we have a hard time believing in supernatural things, that God can actually intervene in the affairs of men. Uh, but here is... An angel, according to the custom, verse 10, and the whole multitude were in prayer outside at that very, very hour. So the whole thing is, is very fascinating. Uh, I'll try to summarize it because we've got to read more. We've got a whole chapter to do, by the way. So 80 verses. You guys ready? 80 verses. 
We'll skip around. Thank you. Um, we won't talk about every single verse. But, uh, so there were about 1,000 priests at that time, 1,000 priests, and there were 24 orders of priests, 24 cycles, and he belonged to one of them, the order of Abijah, says in verse 6, uh, verse 5, the order of Abijah. So there were 24 cycles and thousands of priests, and uh, it says by lot it fell that he went to, t- to do the temple service. So all the priests lived around Jerusalem, just around the temple area and the villages, and most priests never got a chance to go. In fact, if you got to go, it was a lifetime opportunity. It was a lifetime opportunity because there were so many priests, and uh, each lot, or sorry, each service lasted a week, so you can kind of tell that you could only get 52 services, you get 52 priests to do the work. Uh, there were other things that they did, but with that amount of priests, and only 52 times that you can go up there, if you, if you were so fortunate to land on every time to go and service the Lord, you would say, there are some priests that never got a chance to go, and he was quite old. And it says, his time came, and he probably thought, I'm never going to go up to the temple. I mean, can you imagine that? You've been, a, as a believer, you wonder, like, is the Lord ever going to use me? No? Just me? Okay. Um, is the Lord ever, I'm getting old. I'm 40, I'm 50, I'm 60, you know. Yes, 40, it is getting older, right? Uh, I'm 30, you know. Hear young people say, I'm 30, I'm not married. All this stuff, like, if you only knew, right? If you only knew. But you're young, and, uh, and he was getting older. We don't know how old he was, but maybe in his 60s now. Thinking, is God ever going to use me? All I do is, I am a priest, and all I do is do the service at home, but is God ever going to call me to that wonderful experience? And his lot came. Boom. Remember, God's working, right? He begins to work. Unbeknownst to all of us, he's got a greater plan. And what was that plan? Well, he's going to declare that he's going to have a son, a firstborn son. Firstborn sons are very interesting in the Bible. If you read it, it goes back to Egypt, right? God delivered them through the death of the firstborn, except if you had the blood on the, um, on the, on the door, you will not touch by the angel of death. You were passed over. And uh, that firstborn child was uh, very grateful that, uh, that the Lord did that, the Passover. But then after they came out of Egypt, God says, that firstborn, he belongs to me. He belongs to me. And uh, if you want to redeem him, you need to pay a certain tax, a certain uh, firstborn. You had to pay a half shekel for the firstborn. Uh, to redeem them back from the Lord, and he becomes your child again. Very fascinating story, isn't it? I won't, you know, it's a whole story, and I don't want to get into too much of the teaching, but it relates to Jesus. The redemption, the shekel, the silver, the firstborn. Okay, uh, here's John, firstborn, and he is now someone that is going to be part of redemption. Someone's going to be part of the redemption. And so uh, Zechariah is there, and uh, he gets to go in. And he gets to burn incense in front of the holy place. And he's never done this probably before. And he's the only one who's allowed to go in. Everybody's outside praying. And he's praying inside. So you could imagine, there's no way anybody can be in this room except for me. That's what he's thinking, because that's all priests do. Once, go into the temple, into the holy place, praying, burning incense. He's the only one praying. Everyone else is outside. Tells you right there. And an angel of the Lord, verse 11, appeared to him standing at the right hand of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw the angel and fear gripped him. I would be too. I'm the only one who's supposed to be in this room and there's an angel. And uh, you're sort of sizing him up to see how fast you can get out of this room or something, right? You're quickly troubled. You're quickly fearful of what what this could be. Zechariah was troubled. Verse 13, the angel said to him, don't be afraid. Your petitions have been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you will give them his name, 
John. You will give him his name, John. Amazing. Um, why is that so amazing? It's because they were older. They did not have children. And God had a plan to bring a man named John. Notice that God names him. It is God who names him. Normally parents do, right? Parents, you name your children. Uh, but here's one that God names him. By the way, Jesus is also named by God. These two men were named by God. God named them. Uh, and um, fascinating because not only is his name, his name means God is gracious. God is gracious to us. Uh, he is going to do something that is pretty amazing and pretty great. Look what it says. Don't be afraid. You'll name him John, verse 14. You'll have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great. Now, they just told us something about another person, right? Uh, Verse 5, Herod. He was called Herod the Great. And God's trying to say there are people in this society that think they're great, but you know what? I get to tell you who's great and who's not. Not Herod, the son of a little priest, (laughs) the son of an older woman, He's going to be great. By the way, the same thing is said about Jesus. He will be great. He will be great. And he is great. And the, little, the son of a, of a little teenager. And the foster, foster father was a, a carpenter from Nazareth. And yet God calls great people that the world doesn't call great. And the people who want to be called great, God says they're not so great. This is where Paul got probably the story of Jesus and the story of the Old Testament, where Paul got the idea in Corinthians, it said God doesn't call all the great people. God doesn't call and doesn't use all the amazing people of the world. He uses the lowly, the foolish, the people that are unwise. He wants to bring them so they could become great in the sight of God. And so God does all this, and he's doing this even to this day. By the way, we still apply it to our lives today. God is still using people that are not so great in the world, and he's using them to do great things because it's not about how great you are. It's about how God great is. Our God is so great and he uses ordinary people like us. And, uh, of course, John here is named by God. And God tells us what he's going to do. He said he's going to be great. Uh, he, will, he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine, no liquor. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. Yet in his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. So he has his assignment from God. God has already determined what he is going to do. And uh, what's amazing is Zechariah said to the angel, verse 13, how will I know this? How will I know that this is true? I mean, this is quite amazing. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. Uh, I have seen, uh, I have been sent to you and to bring you this good news. You know what the word is? Gospel. The gospel. We haven't talked about Jesus yet. Why is it good news? Remember I told you the gospel does not begin with Jesus. The gospel begins with religious to say that. I will prove it to you. The gospel begins with John because you cannot know Jesus unless you know John. And what you have to say is the key to understanding Jesus. Verse 20, And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day when the things take place because you did not believe my words and they will be fulfilled in the proper time. And people were waiting outside. Zechariah comes out, and, and uh, people were wondering, what happened? Did he die? Something happened in there. And he came out. He was unable to speak. And people were realizing that he had seen something in the temple, a vision. And he kept making signs, and, and he, but he remained mute. So the sign that this was going to be true is, you're not going to talk. You're not going to talk for nine months. Boy, that would be for a priest. It's like a preacher telling him not to talk for nine months. I mean, what are you going to say? 
But that was, you know, those who guys like to teach the Bible, share the, share the gospel. That is a death sentence, isn't it? That's like, forget it. I mean, imagine nine months just sitting there. I would go nuts. I really would. But yet, this is what God intended. Why? He didn't believe. He didn't believe the promises of God. And yet it was the sign to show you that it was true. You want to know if it's true? You're not going to talk. And Zechariah was probably beside himself. This is amazing. Nothing had happened for 400 years. Nothing. No word from the Lord. No miracles. Nothing. And people had lost, maybe he's lost hope. Maybe lost uh, uh, this, uh, maybe he's lost encouragement. They were full of discouragement. And now God says he's doing something and people began to get really excited because when the daily, uh, when his days of priestly service was over, he went home. And after the days, uh, after these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant and she kept herself in seclusion for five months saying, this is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my reproach, my disgrace among men. So he goes home in very, an amazing way, very naturally. Husband and wife come together and they have a child. But the miracle was that this was predicted. And they were older and they were barren. And all of a sudden God says, you're going to have a son. And he goes home. And guess what? He has a son. Uh, would have been kind of an interesting thing to tell Elizabeth how this happens since you can't tell her. You're mute. And yet you're able to have a son. And Elizabeth accepts it. Did you see that acceptance? She accepts it. She accepts the calling of the Lord. And it's a good thing. And for us, it's a really important thing to accept the calling of the Lord in our life. What was she called to do? She was called to bear a son, the greatest man who ever lived, said Jesus. John the Baptist is the greatest man who ever lived. And no, more, no man born of a woman is greater than John. That's what Jesus said. Man, and the accolades from our Lord to this man. And Elizabeth accepted the will of God. There was a thrill. There was not going to be more shame anymore. She's going to have a son. She's going to... Uh, be a mom, there'll be no shame, and they'll be full of the Spirit. And man, she was full of the Spirit as well. And um, like I said, she was a, uh, also a descendant of Aaron. So he was a priest from both sides. Priest from his dad's side, priest from his mom's side. He should have been a priest in the temple. But you'll find out, he will not go to the temple. The temple had become so compromised. They have collaborated with Rome. They have collaborated with the traitors. They had become traitors themselves. And they were not teaching the word of God anymore. And John says, I am no part of this. I am going to the wilderness. I'm going where no one is there. Uh, I'm going not where no man has gone before, where no man is there. Because he is going to be taught by God. He's going to be taught by God for quite some time. Now, I want, to, I want you to notice something very quickly. Uh, the word John, his name means God is uh, gracious, or grace of God, Yohanan, the grace of God. When we look at Zechariah, his name means, does anyone know what Zechariah, I assume nobody knows, but I can't make that assumption. Anybody know what his name means? It's a fascinating word. Zechariah, just like the prophet, it means God remembers. God remembers. God remembers. So it's appropriate, isn't it? 400 years of silence, and who's the person that God speaks to, the first one after 400 years? Zechariah, God remembers. So when you're reading the New Testament, we read it in English, of course. We, we have to insert the names in there. We have to remember that you were probably reading, if you were reading it in the Greek, you were saying, um, after 400 years, God remembers. You would have said Zechariah. God, God talked to Zechariah. God remembers his people. Now, when did God remember his people as well? Do you remember another story? I hate to use the word story because they're real events. It doesn't sound like a 
kind of like a fairy tale. Uh, another account in the Bible, way back in the book of Exodus, they were making bricks for Pharaoh, right? And it says that God remembered. God remembered their cry. God heard their cry and God remembered them. doesn't mean that God forgot them. That, that, that's not what it means. It means that it was brought up to God's mind again. It was something that at the right time, God was going to use it to redeem his people. It happened before, and this would automatically take you back to Exodus and say, well, who did God bring to redeem us? It was Moses. Somebody like Moses is going to come. Remember they were under Pharaoh? A wicked, terrible ruler? Uh, well, now they're going to be under another terrible, wicked ruler, Herod the Great. Same thing. Correlations are very much the same. A wicked ruler over the people of God, God remembers. Zechariah, a wicked ruler, God remembers. Zechariah. And he remembers that God is good and God is gracious. That's what his name is. It's John. God is gracious. And you know what his mom's name was? John the Baptist's mom's name was Elizabeth. Her name means God is faithful. God is faithful. What a name. So you're reading that God remembers that he is faithful and they have a son named John which means God is gracious. It's all there. The gospel story in this little family. We think of the holy family, right? But there's another holy family that we forget. Zechariah, God remembers. Elizabeth, God is faithful. John, God is gracious. He's bringing something new. Now, if that doesn't get you excited, you should be excited because you're sort of at the edge of your seat. Luke is kind of leading us into this story and going, well, what else is God going to do? Go up a little bit north now. Verse 26. On the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent to God, uh, was sent from God to a city of Galilee called, and that said it, Nazareth. It's called the branch. It was the branch. It's a place of the branch, Nazareth, Nazareth, way up north. And um, so we go from Judea all the way up to the north, and God is going to visit a teenager. This is a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. Remember I told you women all over the place here? And the virgin's name was Mary. Miriam. Miriam was her name. And the coming in, in coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favor one of the Lord. The Lord is with you. And she was very perplexed at his statement and kept pondering what things the salutations, uh, this kind of salutation was. The angel said to her, Don't be afraid, just like, just like Zechariah. And uh, don't be afraid. For you have found grace, favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name his name Yeshua, Jesus. Isaiah 7, right? You shall, uh, he will have a son. A son has been given uh, for unto us. A child is born for unto us. A son is given. He will have a son, and his name's going to be Yeshua. His name is going to be Jesus, and his name means God saves. So putting all the names together, you have God remember that he is faithful, that he gives us grace, and he sent someone to save us, Jesus, Yeshua. What a great name, isn't it? Putting it all together, you had a great family. I love to be in that family. All the names mean something awesome. I mean, you can get saved by knowing them. You know, God remembers to be faithful, full of grace, and he saves us. You would be saved if you were in that home. Um, but she lived in Nazareth. She was not married, and and, of course, Elizabeth said, I am no longer going to bear shame and disgrace because I'm going to have a child. Well, Mary was not married, and Mary's going to have a son. And that was going to bring great shame to her. She was going to bring great shame to her and to her family because she wasn't married, and that would have been a sign of 
uh, that she was unfaithful to God and unfaithful to the word of God, unfaithful to her betrothed, uh, uh, Joseph, and that would have brought a lot of shame. And it's interesting how, in one aspect, God's work brings, takes away the shame. On the other aspect, God's work brings shame. How do we correlate those two? How do we marry that together? Because it almost sounds like they're antithetical, and yet they're the work of God. Have you ever, when you came to Jesus, did he take away your reproach? Did he take away your sin and your shame and what you used to do? Amen. That's Elizabeth. Oh, the Lord has done great things. On the other hand, by coming to Jesus, did it also bring some shame to your life? Some reproach from family members or family that didn't understand what God's doing in your life and couldn't really pinpoint why that happened and that you're different and you don't hang around with them anymore or you buy the same things they buy and do the things they do? Yeah. Well, this is what happened to Mary. She, ha- she would have to live with this knowledge that God is using her, but yet was going to bring a great reproach to her. And uh, you don't see her trying to explain it, right? You don't see her trying to go, wait, wait, but you don't understand. I, you know, I've been home. I, I haven't been gone. <laughs> I, haven't gone. I don't know anybody else. No, she lets God deal with it, right? She lets God deal with the issue. In fact, she doesn't even seem like she explains it to Joseph much. God has to explain it to Joseph that this was of God. Uh, I think it's tremendous faith by Mary. Tremendous faith to allow God to work in your life and not having to explain what God's doing. I mean, you don't have to go and, 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 and sort of um, defend God at this, at this point. You just say, look, God's doing the work. And if it brings shame into my life, so be it. So be it. That's the acceptance of God's will in your life. There may be times where you would accept something amazing from God. Don't we love to accept blessings from God? Oh, so good, you get a raise or whatever, gracious, you have a child born. It's so awesome, praise God. But then there are other times where the work of God brings you ill repute to you, brings you shame. Not because you did something wrong, because you did something right. And people don't understand the work of God and, and maybe against you or maybe they're against God and that work of God in your life they're against. Let's continue because we've got we to gotta get going. So uh, the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit, uh, verse 35, will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And you have a relative. Elizabeth has also conceived in her son of old age. And she, was, uh, she who, um, who was called barren is now in her sixth month for nothing will be impossible for God. And Mary, be, uh, and Mary said, Behold, the bondservant of the Lord. May it be done according to your word. And the angel departed. Just like Elizabeth, mission accepted. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. But this is the greatest thing that has ever happened. Look at verse 34. Just like Zechariah, Mary says, How can this be? I'm not even married. I don't know, man. God's going to do it. The Holy Spirit's going to do it. Don't worry about that, Mary. What's the sign? Go see Elizabeth. Go see Elizabeth, that your cousin, who's older, she's going to have a baby. What? No way. Remember Zachariah's sign? You're not going to talk. Mary's sign? Elizabeth is pregnant. I'm doing a work. And it's a, it's a, it's a great work because God is going to do something in these two women's lives. Remember, you can't have Christmas without these two ladies. You know, you're still good news, but you're still not even in the... Uh, uh, in, in the Christmas story, yet. verse 37, for nothing it's impossible with God. Now, I'm going to need a volunteer. Somebody want to come up and read verse 39 through 45, 
And this is a story of Elizabeth meeting Mary, and you would have seen the shock. And uh, what I mean by shock is Elizabeth does not know what has happened to Mary. And yet, oh, Frank, come on up, brother. Um, you have a Bible with you? You can use mine. All right, that's, that's all right. You can use mine. Uh, um, can we have that mic open, uh, Brother Chris? Okay, good. So Elizabeth has no idea what is going on. She just thinks her cousin, huh? No, I, I got one for you. Can we use that music, Stan? Oh, perfect, thank you. 39 to 45. Do you need my glasses? Oh, no, you got yours. Got All right. <laughs> you want to read it over here or you want to read it from the pulpit? I can read it from over here. All right, cool. So I don't have to move much. 39 to 45. Yeah. Maybe I better read. Yeah, fast, Lord. Fast, Lord. 39. Now at this time, Mary rose and went in a hurry to the hill country to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. That's far enough, 45? That's at 45, right? Yeah. Thank you, Brother Frank. I would clap for you. That was very good. Thank you. Yeah. The most dramatic moment. I mean, can you imagine? Knock on the door. Who is it? Oh, it's your cousin, Mary. Come on in. I haven't seen you in a while. And um, all the way down to Jerusalem, right right by the, uh, the Judean villages. Uh, we know the village area, right? We're uh, outside Jerusalem. And uh, she went to see her cousin. Her cousin was pregnant. She was told that by the, by the angel. And uh, you could imagine staring at each other and going, what is that in your stomach? You know, what is that? You're, how old are you? Oh, my. God is doing a work. And, um, and Elizabeth's greeting was quite interesting because as soon as that happened, she leaps up. She leaps up, and Elizabeth became a Pentecostal. She was filled with the Holy Spirit. She was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, her son was also Pentecostal. They call him Baptist, but he was really a Pentecostal, but he was a baptizer. Uh, all kidding aside. But he, she was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she cried out with a loud voice, Blessed are you among women. By the way, that is a direct quote from the book of Judges. Direct quote from the book of Judges. It's Judges chapter 5, J.L., who had delivered a crushing blow to the enemies of God, to the head of the enemies of God, that terrible, wicked general, uh, J.L., was able to crush the head of that wicked man. More of that another time. But it, it is very, it's connected to this, because J.L. is the greatest woman who ever lived, the, the most blessed woman among men, the most blessed women. Uh, blessed among you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Uh, that blessing was for J.L., by the way, where Mary lived, Mary lived in Nazareth. Remember the story of Nazareth? Right over the ridge of Nazareth, there's a little mountain ridge. And one of the mountains is Mount Tabor, 
right in that valley was the story of Deborah and the story of Jael. So that little girl went out every morning looking out to the mountain table, you know, like San Bernardino Mountains, and uh, knowing that the story of Jael and Deborah took place right there. But she never thought she would be most blessed among women. Same place where they took place, Jael, that was another great woman, another great woman God was going to use, Mary. But Elizabeth has no idea that she has the baby. She has no idea. She's filled with the Holy Spirit, and, um, and she didn't know any of this. And yet God knew. But more than that, the baby was filled with the Holy Spirit. It says in uh, Zechariah, uh, it was told to Zechariah that the baby would be filled with the Holy Spirit. And what happened, that the mother of my Lord would come. See, every woman in the first century in Israel, or in Israel period, would have loved to have been the, mo- the mother of the Messiah. That was the expectation. that God, did, well, God was going to do one day, we'll have a woman, and that woman would give birth to the Messiah. It was the most glorious thing. And uh, she wasn't going to be the mother of the Messiah, but her cousin was going to be the mother of her Lord. By the way, this is the first person who calls Jesus Lord. The first person who called Jesus Lord. Isn't that amazing? It took the disciples three years to call him Lord. My Lord and my God. Three years! This woman, because she was filled with the Holy Spirit, called Jesus Lord automatically. What a woman. What a mom. And you could see how her son took after her. The humility of John. He must increase, I must decrease. Where did John get all that? Mom. Moms, you have a great opportunity to raise your children in the fear of the Lord. And they would become great, according to God. And it says, uh, verse 44, well, Behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. Whoa, what a blessing. And um, it was the baby who knew that that was Jesus. And Elizabeth didn't know. She said, something's happening. And then she gets, know, she gets to know that Jesus was in her womb, Mary's womb. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what has been spoken to her by the Lord. Oh, Mary, you're going to be the mother of the Messiah. You're going to be the mother of the Lord. And uh, my baby knows it. And uh, I know it without you telling us. The Holy Spirit has revealed this to us. Now, what is Mary's response? Um, Somebody want to come up and read what we call the Magnificat, uh, the blessing of Mary, the song. It wasn't a song, but we sing it as a song now. The Magnificat comes from the first word of that, the magnify the Lord. Coming up, Brother Tony. Uh, magnify the Lord is the first word in the Latin. So we call it the Magnificat. comes from magnify. Uh, it means to exalt. And uh, Tony, you got a little bit more reading. You got 46 through 56. Oh, wow. Yeah, so you got to leave you alone for a little bit. <laughs> 46 through 56, yeah. Uh, and Mary said, my soul exalt, exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, and from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich of rich empty-handed. 
He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. As he, has, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. And Mary stayed with her about three months and then returned to her home. The Magnificat. Oh, magnify the Lord, says Mary. By the way, uh, you want to do a little bit of reading, you can read First Samuel. First couple of chapters is the story of Hannah. This song, I hate to use the word song. We sing it as a song. It wasn't originally a song, but you know what I'm saying. The Magnificat comes from Hannah's prayer, comes from Hannah's response to God. Another woman who was barren couldn't have a son, and God promised her through the priest, you're going to have a son, and his, your son's going to be great too. He's going to be the greatest, one of the greatest prophets, the last judge and the great prophet, Samuel. And Hannah praised the Lord. And that, that, this is where this comes from. Um, so not so much original. It's not about originality. It's about praising God. By the way, you get the point that Luke is trying to show you, right? Um, unlike other Gospels, has the most praise and prayers than any other Gospel. Uh, most people pray and praise in the book of Luke. That's why we keep stopping because it's such a great prayer or such a great praise. And hopefully that fills your heart today. That the good news, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, what comes out of your mouth is going to be two things. Prayer and praise. Prayer and praise. God's going to, you ever wonder why God, when he fills you with the Spirit, all the gifts of the Spirit, majority of them, have to do with this. There's an outlet that God has given you. That outlet, when you're filled with God's Spirit, that outlet has to go. You know, just like a, a sink has an outlet, Right? Uh, it has to go. The water has to come out. Jesus said, of your innermost beings will flow rivers of living water. You ever wonder where those living waters are going to come out? <laughs> Is it just spontaneously osmosis will just seep out of your body? No. It has to come out of somewhere. Your mouth is the vehicle that God will use to give praise and prayer. And these women, and we're going to get to a man who's going to be filled with the Spirit, too, in a minute. Uh, but what a song. What a magnificent song. And she says, I need a Savior, too. I need a Savior, too. Mary says, I need a Savior. I believe Mary is true. Mary, you're absolutely right. You know, they've made this idea that she had no sin. Uh, but that's not biblical. The Bible says she needed a Savior. There it is. She sinned just like all of us. And in the midst of all of us, she would be praising the Lord today. She'd be singing and praising God because she... Have become, has become the mother of our Lord, the mother of Jesus. And um, what a song, though. I'm not going to spend too much time because we've got to finish. Fifteen times she mentions the name of God in this little area here. Fifteen times. I don't know if Christians mention God 15 times throughout the week. But, you know, I, I think we have to do that. And here's Mary, just a quick little, that's a quick little song, quick little statement. Fifteen times the word of God mentions God, God. God did this, and God did that, and God is gracious, and God is merciful, and he remembers us, and he is just, and he brings down those who are haughty and exalted and rulers who think that they're mighty. Remember Herod? That goes back to that verse 5, right? Herod and God saying, I'm bringing everything down, and I'm raising up the humble, and I'm going to exalt those who have humility. And uh, by the way, this is, again, Paul's statement. God will use the humble things, the nothingness. The people who in this world are absolutely destitute. The world laughs at it. The world doesn't care. They think there's foolish things. God exalts the humble and the foolish. And he uses them. And he brings down the, 
the haughty, and the mighty, and the wise, according to this world. And God is faithful, uh, she says. He remembers us. He remembers us that one day he talked to an old man out in the desert in Canaan. And that old man looked up at the stars, and it was such a great promise that he had to lean on the tent because he couldn't believe what a great promise God had made. Anybody know who that man was? Abraham. She mentions Abraham. She must have known her Bible, don't you think? I mean, you don't see this song or this, this statement comes out just out of nowhere. Of course, she was filled with God's Spirit, but there was something that the Holy Spirit used. Bible. Get Bible in your heart. Get Bible in your system. And then when the Holy Spirit opens that outlet, guess what's going to come out? Bible. And she said, Abraham. Oh, remember Abraham. He staggered at the promises. He couldn't believe it. God, you're going to give us kids? An old couple? <laughs> A barren couple, another barren couple, right? Abraham and Sarah. And not only that, I'm going to give you a son. She laughed. That's what his name is, Isaac. Isaac means to laugh. Ha ha, she laughed. Remember the Lord said, ah, you laughed. And she said, no, I didn't. Even then, right? Sorry, ladies. But even then, you're trying to hide it, right? But uh, God says, you laughed. I heard you. And you're going to name him Isaac. And he was such a blessing to his parents. Probably may give him a lot of joy. And it says, not only that, Abraham, you're going to have more children than you can count. It's going to be like the stars and the sands of the sea. And Abraham was shocked, and he couldn't even imagine that God was so good. And Paul the Apostle tells us in that promise, it was Jesus. It was the seed. The seed of Abraham was going to come. And he remembered, but it took 2,000 years, Lord. What's the wait? What happened? Why do we have to wait so long? In his time, everything's beautiful. I don't know why God waits, but he's never late. I tell you that much. I don't know why he waits, but he's never late. You can take that to the bank today. Don't take it to the bank. That's a, it's not secure enough. Yeah, you can take it to your heart and say, you know what? God must be doing something. He must be preparing. And he prepared it for 2,000 years. Can you wait 2,000 years? I can't, but they had to. Uh, because God was doing something. He was laying a deep foundation. That foundation is the Old Testament. So all the promises of God can stand on the, on the Old Testament. So when the New Testament comes, you can go, yep, that's what the prophet said. Yep, that's what he's told Abraham. Yep, that's what he did in Israel. And you can be assured that just the same God who did that in Israel will do that in your heart today. That's why the Old Testament is so important. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. All the promises of God, right? The ones, Even the ones that uh, we don't really read or understand too much. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus, and it was written for our learning. The Old Testament. But she stayed there for three months, and she went home. Probably because she didn't want to talk about what was going to happen to her. Right? She wasn't married. She, uh, she realized that all the family members were coming in. Nine months are almost up for Elizabeth, and there's going to be a lot of families there, and what am I going to say? I'm not married. I'm going to have a baby. Remember, it brought a lot of tension and, and um, shame to Mary. Uh, even, even later on in his life, Jesus was questioned. Remember the story in John chapter 8? They questioned whether he was born out of fornication. Uh, imagine carrying that. I, I, Jesus is so awesome. And I can't imagine somebody spitting in his face like that, but it did. People questioned Jesus. People questioned his birth, his mother, his relationships. Um, you're not the only one, just to tell you that much. You're not the only one. Verse 57, so we've got to finish. John is born. What a blessing. John is born, and it's a blessing when a baby's born. Sam, you're going to have a baby? It's going to be a blessing, and it's absolutely amazing. Now, 
you know, you're going to pick the names, but here God had picked the names already. Uh, but we have some family conflict, doesn't it? Uh, the time had come, Elizabeth, to give birth. She gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. And it happened on the eighth day. They came to circumcise the child, and they were going to call him Zachariah. That's his father's name. That's traditional. That's what families do. That's what we do in as a Jewish family, Jewish culture. But his mother answered and said, no. Indeed, it shall be called John. God is gracious. And they said to her, there's no one in your family called John. And verse 62, and they made signs to his father so that they wanted him to call, uh, what, what they wanted him to call. And uh, he asked for a tablet and he wrote as follows. His name will be John. He wrote it. And uh, once that happened, his mouth was open and his tongue was loose and he began to speak and praise God. The praise of God. Remember, the mouth is open. When you're filled with God's Spirit, it's only one thing that's going to come out, praise. Fear came upon all living around them, and all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. Who heard, uh, all who heard them kept in mind, saying, What then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord will certainly be upon him. Everybody was there, the family was there, and they were going to, that, family tradition, you got to do this, got to do that. And he says, no, you know what? God is doing something new. Call him John. And they're like, there's nobody named John. And then Zechariah had to write on the tablet, his name will be John. As soon as that happened, he can speak. Praise God. And he's able to share the things that God wanted him to do. And um, that is the story of John the Baptist, how he came about. And um, Zechariah is able to tell us that God was doing such a magnificent work in the life of, of John, in the life of uh, Zechariah, in the life of many other ones that will come. But this is the beginning. This is the beginning of the gospel. Turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Just over to the left a little bit. Mark chapter 1. First chapter in the book of Mark. By the way, Mark has no Christmas story. Uh, There's no um, uh, account of the birth of Jesus. But there is an account of someone. John 1.1. I'm sorry. Mark 1.1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. What is the beginning of the gospel? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. No. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send you a messenger ahead of you. You will prepare the way. The voice of one cried in the wilderness, make straight, make ready the way of the Lord. Make this path straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. What is the beginning of the gospel? A voice crying in the wilderness. John the baptizer saying, repent so that you would be forgiven. That's the beginning of Christmas. That's the beginning of the gospel. That's why God put it there. So that we would not forget that the message of Christmas begins with, unbelievably enough, John. Faith, repentance, forgiveness. And we haven't even touched on Jesus yet. See, we so quickly want to get to Jesus. We so quickly want to get, and say, who wouldn't, right? I, I, of course. But you can't know the message of Jesus unless you first know the message of John. It's a challenge to many Christians today. Because what was John's message? Repent. See, God offers forgiveness. There's no doubt. Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sin, to give us his righteousness, to make us new to Make us born again by faith and repentance. No doubt. But you can't have that forgiveness unless you first repent. 
to turn from your sin and turn toward God. You can't have forgiveness unless you do that first. That's the challenge, isn't it? That's why John is not in any Christmas card. That's why you never find a Christmas. You ever had a Christmas card about John the Baptist? Nobody? I think we should make that a tradition. Repent and believe for the forgiveness of sin. Merry Christmas! People will probably send it back to you. Return to sender. But isn't it interesting how we just bypass the reality of Scripture and we go right to what we like? Oh, the baby in a manger. Oh, the Bethlehem story. Wonderful. Amazing. No doubt. First, God says, pay attention to John. A whole chapter is written about his mother, about his birth, about his father. Well, we got to finish. Somebody want to come up and read the Benedictus? The Benedictus is... Uh, Zechariah's turn, verse 67, Zechariah's turn. Uh, His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit. Another person filled with the Holy Spirit. And he began to prophesy, saying, blessed, Benedictus, blessings. Uh, Anyone want to come up? Come on up, Keith. It keeps getting longer, 67 to uh, 79. Sorry about that. (laughs) <laughs> Frank had a shorter one Tony had a little longer one and you get the yeah, I get the yeah you get the message uh, Mike his father Zachariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesies praise be to the Lord the God of Israel because he has come to his people and redeemed them he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David and as he as he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hates us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. Amen. Amen. Notice this as we finish. Notice this mention of Abraham again. Israel, salvation. What a great praise. He goes back a thousand years before to David. He says, oh, you know, we had a king. We had a king. Oh, God, we had a king, and we wanted the wrong king. We wanted Saul. We, we missed the king, but we wanted David. And for a thousand years, Israel's been waiting for David. David was the second king of Israel. He was the anointed one. Saul was also anointed, but he was the wrong king. Israel wanted a king. God says, you pick your king, and he gave them Saul. But then he sent Samuel to pick David. And from that moment on, they've been wanting one like David. For a thousand years, they've got all bums. I like to quote Frank. They got all bunch of bums as kings. Some good, some not so good. 
But off the end of the day, they all failed in their mission to be a righteous king. And Zechariah says, oh, Lord, but you have not forgotten us. Zechariah, you remembered. You remember that we needed somebody like David. And you raised up a horn. You raised up somebody that's going to come and he's going to deliver us. And he's going to deliver us from who? It says our enemies. Those who hate us. Israel had all kinds of enemies. The body of Christ had all kinds of enemies. Israel had enemies in Egypt, enemies in Babylon, enemies in Assyria, enemies in Persia, enemies in Greece, all these other uh, Amalekites and Amorites all through the, through the middle of the, of the Old Testament. And now they had Rome. And now they had Herod. And God says, I'm going to redeem you. And he's going to thank the Lord for John. He says, oh, you child, you'll be the prophet of the Most High. You're part of God's plan and part of God's promise. You're the forerunner. You're the forerunner because at that time you would send a harbinger, a forerunner, to prepare the way of the king. They prepare the roads and make sure everybody was good and everybody was ready for the king to arrive. And Isaiah 40 tells us, that's the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And um, John's message was prepare to have your sins dealt with. Prepare to have your sins dealt with. Prepare for the forgiveness of sin and that God is going to free us. He's going to free us from our enemies so that we can serve him. So that we can serve him. And uh, that's how forgiveness works, by the way. Repentance from our sin and now we can serve our God. From sin unto service. And that was John's mission. John's mission was to preach the forgiveness of sin through repentance. And that's why he's called John the Baptizer, because he called people unto repentance. And he had, to, he had the message to tell people, God will forgive you. But you have to do one thing. It's always the case. God does something and you do something. It's always that. You have to respond to his love. You have to respond to his calling of forgiveness. And how do we respond? We turned away from sin. Unto him. That's repentance. And to show that, John the Baptist had a repentance, uh, a baptismal of repentance. Go out to the Jordan, meet John, and he'll tell you what to do. And he says, oh, you're going to give light. God's going to give light to those who sit in darkness. See, all that darkness that was coming upon Israel, all the wars, all the civil wars, all the death, all the battles, all the taxes, all the wicked rulers, it was like darkness. But out of Judea was a little boy growing up in the desert. tells you what happened, verse 80. I can't believe we got to 80 verses. Uh, it tells you that he lived in the desert. Oh, there was a light shining. That light was going to come, and that light was going to be a voice. A voice in the desert preparing the way for the true light. Oh, God was doing something. And God was doing something unique. Two families, one older couple, one girl wasn't even married. She will be, but she wasn't yet. And a man comes up and it says, John will be his name. God will be gracious to us. And he was there and he appears. It says he appeared to Israel. At some point, this training was in the desert. A lot of men, a lot of godly men, a lot of godly women are trained in the desert. Don't ever be discouraged by your desert experience. That's where God grows us the most. You know the desert experience? The dryness, the trouble, the hardships, the difficulties, the trials, the tribulations. And we're like, why am I in this desert? You could be like John. You are getting ready for a public appearance in which God will use you. And we're at the edge of that. By the way, um, 
uh, right on the edge of where John was. It was a little town, Bethlehem. The little town of Bethlehem looks like this now. That's what it looks like today. This little town of Bethlehem, right on the edge where John grew up, preaching in the wilderness of Judea. It's this little place where Jesus would be born. That's next week, though. That's Luke chapter 2. But like John today, we are called to prepare the way for the Lord. Just like John, we need to be filled with God's Spirit. Just like Mary, just like Elizabeth. See, it doesn't matter how old you are, and it doesn't matter if you're male or female. God makes no distinctions. He gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask. To those who ask, he gives. But what's the point? So that we can make people ready for the return of Jesus. See, we're living in that edge, just like the people at that time, where everything and wicked rulers and wickedness and wars were on the edge and on the cusp, and there was darkness, and people said, well, what God's going to do? Why is God not doing anything? Somewhere in the wilderness, in a little church, maybe a big church, God's preparing people who are going through wilderness experience to carry the message so that people would be saved before Jesus comes. Oh, he's coming. Make absolutely, make no mistake about it. Christmas is going to happen again. Jesus is going to come. It's slightly different, but there'll be people who will herald his name right before he comes, preparing the way of the Lord. Would you carry that message today? Would you be able to open your mouth like Zechariah and Elizabeth and say, Lord, I'm just a foolish person. <laughs> I'm just in some village, in some town. Nobody's heard of it. But the Lord knows. He remembers to be faithful, to be gracious, to save us. That's what that name means. Zechariah. Any Zacharias? Any Elizabeth? Any Marys? Any Johns here? Well, God's preparing you. Maybe the wilderness. And the wilderness is not fun until the Lord calls. Let's stay in that wilderness and let's be filled with God's Spirit. But make no doubt about it. He will use you. He will use you before Jesus comes. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you that through the example of these men and women, we could see that you work in the lives of men and women. You're not a respecter of people. That means you don't respect one over the other. You are the same for both of us. And you will use men and women, no doubt, men and women who call upon your name, who serve you, who want to know you, who want the Holy Spirit, who want to be filled with God's Spirit, who wants God's Word in their hearts. Lord, I thank you. There's men and women in this fellowship who long, Lord, for you and long for your calling in their lives. And there may be a wilderness that it seems so ever-present, yet, Lord, it's the time of preparation. It's a time where you took men and women to prepare them for the work ahead, for the ministry that you have called them. Lord God, thank you. Bless them, Lord. Protect them. Watch over them. Lord, they may be raising children that may be the ones that you'll use for that calling, Lord, goes to men, women, families. We thank you, Lord, for the example of Elizabeth and Zachariah raising a godly man. We thank you for John. Thank you for his humility. But, Lord, thank you for Mary and thank you for her commitment to carry on a work that 
brought a lot of shame to her life, yet she became the mother of our Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your grace today. And thank you, Lord, for Jesus. We've only mentioned him, but he hasn't appeared yet. That's next chapter. And we thank you, Lord, that preparing the way of Jesus may be hard, may be difficult, but it's so worth it. So worth to see men and women ready to receive him. And so, Lord, I pray today for the hearts in this fellowship, for the hearts and minds in this fellowship, for those who have heard it and maybe heard it a million times, and and yet this million and one time, it made sense. That they would, Lord, abandon all thought of saving themselves or saving themselves through good works or, or saving themselves through their own actions. Lord, I pray they would abandon that and fully rest on what you have done. Fully rest on the sacrifice that Jesus became for us, sin, so that we could become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Thank you for the message of John that pointed to the way so that we would be ready, that our hearts would turn from sin and grab a hold of forgiveness. And that is the one thing we need, Lord, this Christmas, is forgiveness of sin. And I thank you, Lord, that you provide that through the cross, through the baby who became a man and died for our sins, through the Son of God who loved us and carried our sins on the tree. And we bless you, Lord, and may my, our, our mouth and our, and our lives become, Lord, that trumpet to become that voice that you want to use. For there are many people, Lord, who need the message of salvation today. There are many people who need the message of forgiveness There are many people, Lord, who need good news that despite wicked rulers and wicked things, Lord, you are going to reign forever and ever and that you invite us into your kingdom to be your friend, to be your family, to be your loved one. Thank you, Lord, for your love and protection. And we pray all these things in the mighty, incredible, awesome name of our Lord Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.